One of the guiding principles of child support contained in Section 4 of the Act is the party should be free to the greatest extent possible to tailor their own circumstances into their cases. So depending on the specific needs of the couple and the children, the party should be given the freedom to do that. And the non-agency payment credit process is one of the ways the system does that. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 390 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. So in the past four episodes, we have spoken about child maintenance trust. Today and next week, let's do two more episodes about child support, but not about CMTs, but variations of normal, periodic, direct child support payments. Just normal mum pays to dad or, or dad pays to mum. Today, let's talk about non-agency payments and then next week about lump sum payments of child support. So non-agency payments is when one parent, instead of paying child support to the other parent, pays an expense directly, for example, school fees. And then lump sum payments is when rather than paying it every month, you just pay once and be done. So those two things, non-agency payments today and then lump sum payments next week. So let's talk about what they are, how you get them and how they affect family tax benefit A and B. The tax side of all this is relatively straightforward. They all fall under Section 5150 ITAA 97. So a tax exempt on the mother's side and no tax deduction on the father's side, assuming that the mother is the payee and the father is the payer, of course. So today, let's talk with Simon Bacon of Mainby and Scott in Melbourne about non-agency payments. Here is Simon Bacon. Normally, of course, child support is levied by the child support agency in accordance with the statutory formula that requires the payer parent of child support, as normally, but not always, but normally dad, to pay the payee, who's normally mum, a given amount of dollars each year. And the expectation is that the mother then goes and takes that money, that physical money, and pays for all of the needs that the child has. But dads often get very upset and disappointed with that. They will often say, well, look, I don't think the child's being looked after properly. Sometimes they criticise mum for spending all the money on herself, so on and so forth. Or sometimes dads say, look, I accept that mum's spending the money on the child, but I want to use this money to be more involved with the child's life. I want, for instance, the school to send me the bill for little Johnny's excursion to the zoo so that I pay the bill for the excursion so I can be a part of it. I know that he's going on his excursion to the zoo and I know when he's going and, you know, the school keeps me in the loop. But, uh, sometimes fathers say that it's important for the child also to see that the father's in the loop. Sometimes fathers believe that mothers get in children's ears in when they're separated and say such things that your father doesn't care, your father's not interested in you. But the fathers say, well, look, if little Johnny sees me paying this and little, little Johnny has to bring the a receipt for the excursion or the dentist's bill to me and I pay it, he or she is going to see me involved in the child's life and that's a good thing and it probably is a good thing. So the 
mechanism that the law has to allow that to happen is called a substitution order. And it's the notion that a court can give a payer of child support permission not to pay money directly to the mother, but to pay part of the money that's to be paid in child support to third-party providers of child support. And the law on this, for anybody who's interested in looking it up, can be found at sections 121 through to sections 129 of the Child Support Assessment Act, which is a Commonwealth Act from 1989. And the most common things that get paid with substitution orders are school fees. That's a very big one. Medical costs, often dental costs, orthodontic costs, one type of cost that seems to come up a lot. And often if the child has some special hobby that he or she likes to do, music or sport, whatever, dad can pay those fees. He's involved in the process. The child can see that father is paying the fees and everybody's happy. Now, although this term substitution order is a term that has only come into the law relatively recently, in 1989 it came in when this act was passed, this notion has historically been part of the law. And I found a quote from a case in 1943 that shows that this isn't a new area of law. It's been around for some time. The case, or anyone interested in looking at it, is Ackworth, A-C-W-O-T-H, which is reported at 1943 Probate 21 at page 22. And this is an English Court of Appeal case. And in that case, the court said, maintenance is a very wide word. And in my view, it should be read as covering everything which a wife may within reason want to do. This was a spousal maintenance claim. So it's talking about the wife, but talking more generally also about child maintenance. It includes much more than food, lodging, clothes, travelling and so on. It includes, for instance, charity and making arrangements for the future, thus incurring various liabilities in her discretion and it is wrong to limit it to any particular form of expenditure. So these substitution orders, although I've discussed them applying to medical fees, school fees, hobbies, they could really apply to anything that payer wants to contribute to in relation to his uh, child. And indeed, the law seems to encourage these substitution orders being made. In most parts of the Child Support Assessment Act, before a court is allowed to interfere in what's happened at the Child Support Agency, special circumstances need to be shown. The Act talks has this phrase that is often re- reoccurring, saying in the special circumstances of the case, this or that, but with substitution orders, Parliament hasn't put that phrase into the Act. So most of us who practice in the jurisdiction would argue that this substitution order is something that's to be freely and often used, and it shouldn't be restricted in its uh, operation. And indeed, before a court can make one of these substitution orders, there are only really two simple jurisdictional prerequisites that have to exist. Firstly, there needs to be an administrative assessment in place, which is the process that the child support agency goes through in determining how much child support dad is to pay to mum, or of course, sometimes it can be mum paying it to dad. Secondly, apart from the administrative assessment, the only other requirement is that one party has to come to the court and ask for it. 
So really it's open and it's out there for many people to use and I'd encourage people to use it because it has a lot of positive aspects and in particular, of course, the child is seeing the payer of child support making a contribution. It's very important. Originally I thought that substitution orders and a lump sum payment of child support is the same thing. But I now actually start to think it isn't the same because substitution order basically just takes the uh, regular periodic childcare assessment and takes part of that and says, okay, you pay less of this and for that you pay school fees, you pay medical fees, you pay dental, you pay for the hobbies, correct? So substitution order is not really moving to a one-off lump sum that will wipe out any further obligations. A substitution order is really just taking this periodic payment and saying we pay a little bit less and then for that we will be responsible for school fees and these and these expenses, correct? Well, there are two parts to a substitution order. Both of these parts are found within sections 121 through to sections in section 129 of the Act. A substitution order is non-periodic child support, so it covers lump sums as well. Um, you've got these two aspects. You can pay your non-periodic child support by way of a substitution order, by paying the school, or in some instances, courts or parties themselves say, well, this man should pay out his future child support by way of a lump sum payment. Now, courts will typically do that when a case is before the court and the man involved has got a, an appalling payment history and the court says, well, look, we're here and there's a court case on. We're going to deal with the fact this man is a recalcitrant and we're going to order that he pay all of or a significant portion of his future child support as a lump sum payment. But sometimes parties themselves can approach the court and say, look, um, the payer wants to pay out his future obligations so he can make a lump sum payment over, he can get on with the rest of his uh, financial uh, life without being tethered to the payee. And payees of child support love lump sum payments, of course, because they get a capitalised payment that they can then use to go and pay off the mortgage or do whatever that else they want. Lump sum payments are very favoured by payees. Payers don't often like them because it means they've got to find a large sum of money. Often the money's borrowed and interest has to be paid on it. But nonetheless, lump sum payments are part of the substitution order jurisdiction. And that particular part of the law can be found in section 124 of the Child Support Assessment Act. So it's not really black or white. It's not either a periodic child support or a lump sum. You can have any variation in between where you might have some periodic and some non-periodic payments that either happen several times during the year or you might go to the very extreme where you just have one payment and then everything is done. So there's basically lots of shades of grey. Yes, there are. The court has many, many options open to it. But both of those options, whether it be paying third parties or paying the other parent as a lump sum, have various problems. First of all, non-periodic child support isn't a registrable maintenance liability under the Act, which means it can't be collected by the child support agency. 
So if the court orders or the parties agree that the payer should take a certain amount from his child support assessment each year, not pay it to the mother but pay it to the dentist, the orthodontic work that the child has to have, and then the payer doesn't pay the dentist, it's up to the mother to enforce that payment through the court system, which is you know, obviously expensive and time-consuming and stressful. So that's a real problem with these substitution orders. So the child support agency will help you with your periodic payments through a child support assessment, but they won't help you with substitution orders. Correct, yes, which creates a problem. The other negative thing, and this applies particularly to lump sum payments, is that you pay a capital lump sum and then the custody of the child might change. Okay, so the child was with mum, but the child's fallen out with mum and now comes back and lives with dad. But the father's already paid out his child support for the next 15 years. Well, perhaps not 15 years because the child will only be three. A child will only change custody maybe if the child's out of 12. So the father's, in that instance, paid out six years of child support unnecessarily. Or sometimes the child dies. Or sometimes a parent substantially kicks a financial goal, they might win Tatsuwana. Say the mother who's had the custody of the child and continues the custody of the child wins a large sum of money on the national lottery and dad's already paid out at the lower figure. What happens there? I mean, in theory, parties could go back to court and undo the lump sum order and order or had the court order that it be returned. That would be under section 129 of the Act. In reality, that's very, very hard to do. So there are advantages, but there are also significant disadvantages with uh, this jurisdiction. Now, having discussed that in general, it's important to realize that there is another way of achieving a similar goal. Rather than going to court, the parties can apply to the child support agency for what are called non-agency payment credits. So... If the parties agree that the father is allowed to pay some of his assessed child support to the dentist, the child's orthodontic work, the agency can actually credit the father's account after the father has paid the dentist in that example. That's called a non-agency payment credit, NAP. And what would happen is that both parents, the father pays the dentist and then he presents the receipt to the agency and the agency rings the mother and says, do you agree that this could be credited to the payer's account? And the mother would say yes, and it gets credited. That works well when the parties are civil and sensible toward, toward uh, each other, but the parties have to agree. And if they don't agree, that non-agency payment process can be a little bit troublesome. There is another process as well called prescribed non-agency payments, prescribed non-agency payments. And there's a list of the type of payments that a payer can make in the child support regulations that the child support agency can credit to the father's account without the mother being in agreement. They're called uh, prescribed non-agency payments. Up to about 30% of the father's child support can be credited in that way. But the preferred way is that the parties reach an agreement before anybody pays anything and go to the court and ask the court to make a substitution order by consent. Then there's a court order, 
clearly set out what can and can't be paid and the father uh, can just pay the amount and it, it's automatically uh, deducted from his child support obligation. But these non-agency credits, they would happen kind of through the childhood of the child, correct? Because you can't foresee all the non-agency credits. For example, the child might be three years old and nobody knows yet whether they need orthodontic treatment or not. Hence, that would happen later, correct? Correct, yes. Non-agency payments have at their heart the notion that a payer pays an amount of money and then it gets deducted from his child support assessment. So uh, it's not actually paid until the uh, expense is incurred, which is, of course, at the point where the child needs the expenditure to be carried out, whereas a substitution order is essentially looking forward and saying, well, we think this might happen, and if it does happen, if little Johnny does need orthodontic work, then it can be paid. This area of law is, because you're looking into the future, it is full of circumspection, and there are no certainties. It's like what I was saying before about Lump sums get paid and then things change. So there are all sorts of uncertainties. There are some benefits to substitution orders, but there are also uncertainty. These non-agency credits, you don't need a court for that, correct? It's basically dad pays for the orthodontist and then he hands in the invoice to the child support agency and then the, I assume the mother has to say, yes, okay, give the father the credit, and then the credit happens, correct? Yes. Now, that is called non-agency payment. Uh, the law on it can be found in the Child Support Registration and Collection Act, about Section 71. Again, though, there are some payments that payer can make where the mother's consent is not needed. They're called prescribed non-agency payments, and there's a list of them in the child support regulations. They cover such things as urgent medical care. Surprisingly, for some reason, they even cover the provision of a car to the payee of child support for some reason. But as you can see, these things are fraught with uh, fraught with ambiguity. What does it mean to provide a car to a payee of child support? And if the father pays money out in the provision of a car, will the child support agency interpret what he's paying money for in the same way that the parties themselves interpret it. You can imagine the father, for instance, paying for the car to be washed and the mother saying, well, I don't believe that should be credited to, to my child support account. And the father saying, well, according to the registration regulations, payments in relation to cars can be, and I want it credited. There's lots of ambiguity in this stuff. Can I just quickly clarify? So we have non-agency payments and that is where the father hands in a bill after payment and then hopefully the mother agrees and then his child support for that coming months is reduced, I assume. So that's one thing, non-agency payment. And then we also have prescribed non-agency credit And I don't think you need a court order for that either. You might have a court order, but if you are within the list of identified items, then you can just require a credit for these items, correct? Correct. That is also called non-agency payment. But in that case, it's a prescribed non-agency payment because it's prescribed in the regulations. There's a list of things that father can pay or child support can pay and that it will be credited even without the mother's consent. Now, the limitation on that 
is that the father has to be up to date, otherwise with his child support payments, and he can only pay either 25 or 30% of his total obligation that way. He can't meet all of his obligation in that way. The mother still is said to be entitled to 70% of an assessment in cash to cover the day-to-day needs of the child. So we have non-agency payments, and there we depend on the approval of the mother for these invoices to be credited to the uh, child support. And then we have prescribed non-agency payments where we don't depend on the approval of the mother, but they are definite as long as they meet the uh, criteria listed. Yes. Prescribed. Yes. Yes. Good. Uh And for both, you can't go over 30 or 40% of child support. I think it's either 25 or 30%. Now, there's another criterion as well, and that is that if... A man sees his child for more than 14% of the time, he already gets a discount on his child support. In fact, he gets a 24% discount on his child support if he has the child 14% of the time, which is one day per week. Now, if a man is given that discount, then he can't make non-agency pay. He can't get non-agency payment credits, okay, because the theory is that, well, he's already given a discount because he's providing for the child when the child stays with him. So it's unfair on mum to have her the cash in mum's hand reduced any further because of that. That means these non-agency payments are basically only relevant for non-contact dads. Yes, yes. Well, no, dad can have contact, but he just can't get his discount for having contact, which sits at 14%, one day per week. So if a dad sees his child one weekend per month, for example then he would be able to do a non-agency payment. Correct, because that is less than 14% of the time. Coming to this example you used, which I didn't get, the car. Okay. What was it about the car? Was it a car to the payee or to the payer? Okay, as I was articulating that in my mind, I thought this isn't coming across particularly clearly, but it, it was an example of a prescribed non-agency payment. And the regulations say if dad meets the running costs of the mother's car, then those running costs can be claimed as a non-agency payment credit. The point I was just trying to make is that simply it's very vague. I mean, what's the running cost in car? Clearly petrol would be, registration would be, insurance would be, but then there are all these other kind of things. If dad washed, get mum, gets mum's car washed or gets it detailed or that there are ambiguities with this stuff and that the lines are not clear cut about what is actually involved in paying the running costs of the payee's car. So I get the impression this non-agency payment is a Pandora box of possible conflicts. It's a, it's a Pandora's box and more importantly, dad has to pay it first and then cross his fingers that mum will agree or he can slip in as a, as a prescribed non-agency payment credit, which is why most men who want to go down this track of paying substituted child support prefer to get a court order that specifies upfront what they have to do. And if they meet the criteria that the court sets, then the agency has to give them the the credit. So there's non-agency payments because they are retrospective. You basically never know whether you get a credit or not until you hand in the invoice and you actually have the credit on the statement. Whereas with a substitution order, which goes through the court, the court will be a lot more precise in uh, stating what is covered and what is not covered. 
Yes, yes, it's a it's a um, an order that's tailor made for these parties' own circumstances. Whereas anything in the Act, any of these prescribed non-agency payments listed in the Act, they're very vague. They're not bespokely tailored to that particular couple. So how often do you see non-agency payments and how often do you see substitution orders? Well, non-agency payments are not something I personally see a great deal of because they're handled by the child support agency. Parties simply deal with the child support agency themselves. They don't see a lawyer about it. And as regards substitution orders, it's a very it's not a, an area that's very well known amongst family law practitioners. It's not something you see very often at all. Lump sums are perhaps the more common way in which they manifest. Nearly every payee of child support wants a lump sum payment because it's it's a capital sum in his or her hands that they can use. Payers don't tend to like them because they have to find the money from, from somewhere. Some payers like them because they anticipate changes happening in their lives that the payee can't foresee. For instance, dad might be anticipating going into business. He's on a relatively low wage now, but he anticipates going into business where his income is going to skyrocket. He would want to lock in and buy out his future child support obligation now, even if it means finding a capital sum to pay to month. Because he knows in two years' time his income's going to skyrocket and the fact he's paid a lump sum will protect him from having to come back and revisit this child support issue. You could also do that with an agreement that is not linked to income. You could also enter into a binding child support agreement whereby the parties agree that the child support be capped a certain amount. problem with those child support agreements, though, is they're not court orders and they're more easy for the pay to get out of than a court order. Now, before we go through a little anecdote about Elon Musk and discuss what Elon Musk did with his child support payments, here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Oh, it's coming. That time of year where stress levels go up by 15 to 20 percent. Yep, tax time. And when stress is up, mistakes happen. But I'm not here to talk about my screw-ups. Because this year, I've gone digital with DocuSign. Now there's no snail mail paperwork, invoices are getting done faster. So when it comes to tax time, I can just be an accountant and not some paper chaser. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Just a little anecdote on the side. That is actually what Elon Musk did. He separated from his wife at a time when SpaceX was doing very badly. I think he was close to insolvency. And so that's the time when he separated from the mother of his five children. And hence the mother received a very, very low child support agreement. I think it was something like 50,000 US dollars a year or so, which is relative. I mean, I shouldn't say that is low because I think the average child support in Australia is three or four thousand per year. So of course, it's still a lot. But in comparison to Elon Musk, Current wealth, it is very, very low. And so that's that's exactly what happened to Elon Musk. If that had happened in Australia, these things, family, nothing in family law is written in stone. Okay, so the mother in that instance would probably in Australia take him back to court and have either the, the substitution order varied if it was a lump sum or have the child support agreement annulled if it was a child support agreement. Essentially what needs to happen is that she would have to show exceptional circumstances have arisen 
since the making of the order or the making of the binding child support agreement that creates an unjust situation. Now, I mean, that sounds like a lawyer's picnic uh, to argue about um, what exceptional circumstances are, but it would seem a man of his wealth, I don't know if he's the wealthiest man on the planet, but he certainly had to be up there, uh, should only be paying $50,000 in child support seems completely unjust and an Australian court, I would imagine, would have little problem in upsetting that agreement. And that actually is one of my questions further down the line when we are going to speak about lump sums. How set in stones are there? Could the mother or the court come back? So let's say dad pays a lump sum and thinks he's done and dusted and doesn't have to worry about it anymore. The mother invests it badly, has invested in one coin and all the money is gone. Could the mother come back through the court and demand further payments? Yes, well, the court can always vary these things and the applicable section of the Act is section 129. Let me just see if I can find the crucial wording of it. In fact, the court's given a great deal of discretion. Section 129 is quite a long section. I won't bother reading it, but the court is allowed to do it if it's just equitable and otherwise proper, which creates great uncertainty. In my experience, though, a court is going to be very reluctant to um, vary a lump sum order that itself is made unless fraud can be shown or undue influence or duress. A mere change in financial circumstances itself may not be enough unless you've got the type of situation that's occurred with Musk whereby he was essentially close to insolvency and then he's come back to be one of the richest men on the planet. That situation seems to cry out the court to exercise its section 129 jurisdiction. But when I'm advising clients, I say nothing is written in stone. No guarantees can be given. Just to basically clarify, we basically have substitution orders on one side that are going through the court and these substitution orders are always forward-looking. And then on the other side, we have non-agency payments and they are always backwards. And they always are about payments that have already been made by the payer and where the payer now hopes to receive a credit on his child support obligation, correct? Yes. Now, I do not want to unnecessarily complicate things, but court-ordered substitution orders can go back as well. Okay, you can say that you have paid money and the court can retrospectively give you a credit. But when you're dealing with the child support agency, their non-agency payment process is only forward-looking. You have to pay the debt, pay the invoice, and then cross your, send it into the agency, cross your fingers, and hope that the child support agency gives you the credit. And prescribed non-agency payments can only be about the prescribed items, but just normal non-agency payments can be about anything. As long as the payee agrees that this should be handed in, it can be about anything, correct? Yes, correct. And different to a court substitution order for a non-agency payment, you don't need an administrative assessment, correct? Uh, well, the only way the child support agency would be involved with the case is that if there was already an administrative assessment. Without an administrative assessment, the child support agency isn't involved with the case. So the agency assesses someone's obligation to pay child support at the outset, and that's called an administrative assessment. That 
enlivens the child support agency's involvement. Without that, the agency's not involved at all. Yes, of course. It makes complete sense. You first need to have an obligation before you can get a credit. If you don't have an obligation to start with, then of course the credit shoots into the void. And this obligation is created through an administrative assessment, which is the child support assessment. Yes, yes. And all this is only if we have an assessment, these non-agency payments, etc., they don't apply when we have an agreement because within an agreement, we are completely outside of the agency anyway. Then we're basically just doing our private thing. Yes. You can imagine if the parties go to the trouble of making an agreement, it's a bespoke document to suit their exact needs. And they would have already considered these issues. So the non-agency payments are basically a little bit of an effort to make the child support assessment a little bit more like an agreement, to make the assessment more tailored around the family's needs and what the parents want to spend money on or how the parents want to do this, correct? Yes. One of the guiding principles of child support contained in Section 4 of the Act is the party should be free to the greatest extent possible to tailor their own circumstances into their cases. So depending on the specific needs of the couple and the children, the parties should be given the freedom to do that. And the non-agency payment credit process is one of the ways the system does that. Welcome back. My thought regarding non-agency payments, keep it simple, cash talks. Just leave it all in cash and stay away from non-agency payments. To me, it sounds like it just exponentially widens the potential minefield between the parents. But that is just my thought. In the next episode, episode 391, let's talk about child support lump sum payments. What if the father just had enough and just wants to get out of this constant conflict? Just pay once and then it is done. We already touched on lump sum payments today, but let's drill deeper next week. We will also discuss next week whether and how a CMT changes the payee's entitlement to family tax benefit A and B. The answer is different to what I thought or previously suggested. So all this let's discuss with Simon Bacon of Mainby and Scott in Melbourne next week. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Thank you.